Hello and welcome to the BC Outdoors podcast. Sit back and join us as your host, Mike Mitchell, gets us all access to the leaders in the outdoor scene. All right, welcome everybody to uh, the BC Outdoors podcast. We have a special guest with us today. Uh, we have the CEO of the Pacific Salmon Foundation, Brian Riddell. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. <laughs> so we were just kind of a bit talking a bit off air, and uh, you've just come off of a, a pretty neat trip when you uh, were up at uh, Duncanby during their, I think it is either their first or second trip of the season, I believe, right? It's the first, yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's a big fundraiser they do up there too for you guys and, and for other for other uh, charities as well too. So you know, we can get into that a little bit and then get into the, nit, the nitty-gritty of, of what's going on in the world right now, eh? Good, okay. Yeah. So um, with that uh, with that trip, that was again would, would maybe give our friends at Duncan be a quick plug here. But that was the Rick Hansen uh, the trip, right? And a lot of those proceeds that are raised during that uh, that weekend uh, trip is uh, goes towards the the, the uh, hatchery up in up in Rivers Inlet, I believe. Isn't that, isn't that right? Yeah, Percy Wackus Hatchery. So That's Percy right. Wackus was the manager of the original DFO hatchery there back in the uh, 80s, and it, mm-hmm. got, uh, it burned down, actually. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't rebuild that one. So Sid and Tony Allard have built a new small uh, hatchery in the community. That's and right, so yeah. this first trip is a major fundraiser, uh, and they do an auction and that mm-hmm. with lots of different fishing trips that appeal to people. And, that, and then Sid donates all the... Uh, the profits of the trip for his guests and all the people that want to participate back yeah. to the hatchery as well. So it's a big oh, fundraiser. Awesome. And that hatchery, I believe it's run by the Pacific Sound Foundation. Is, is that right? Well, we manage it. It's run yeah, manage, by right, yeah. uh, an on-site manager and assistant, and it mm-hmm. is owned by the Weekend First Nation. And yeah. we manage it financially. And I give some guidance and Sandy McLaurin, who used to be the community advisor for the Central Coast uh, with DFO. She provides a lot of technical assistance to um, Braden Pierce, Peace, uh, mm-hmm. who is the manager. So there, it's a cooperative sort of management process. Awesome. Well, this is a great seg- seg- segue right into one of the topics that you and I were talking about a little bit off air here was, you know, there's a common fear or a common misnomer out there that the salmon are actually, in fact, disappearing and are going to be gone from this province within years that's not the case is it brian no you know and and that's a very very common fear that i have expressed to me from many different uh, sectors i mean i think the thing that we really have to understand is two fundamental uh, elements of what we see year to year all right so what we see is the abundance of salmon and if there's a trend then we're fearful that there's overfishing or we've destroyed habitat and we don't have the productive capacity. But a lot of it really is just the annual variation in really weather and climate. And that now the, the critical thing though is when we have poor survival, we have to make sure that we sustain the spawning populations and the diversity of the different populations so we use the full habitat. Mm-hmm. That's actually been done very well. So we are seeing currently a poor period of marine survival, but we are seeing uh, proper management in the sense that we're getting most of the fish returning back onto the spawning ground. So we protect the future generations. So there's both the spawning potential and habitat, and there's the annual climate that we really see from the uh, fluctuations from year to year. But the fluctuations don't mean that we don't have future potential to keep production going. Actually, the future potential still is very strong. 
or average angler or average person that wants to get involved or help, what, what, what are some of the things that they can do, Brian, to, to help out? I mean, we, we know that license portions of license sales go back to help out with this, but what, what can the average person do to, to be involved and help out with this? Well, that's really what the Pacific Salmon Foundation does because of volunteer efforts like that. And so there's actually 345 different organizations that the Salmon Foundation supports <coughs> that we really call community volunteers. And they work to restore habitat, uh, to make sure that the streams are cleared up, um, maintain these sort of riparian areas along the shores of small streams. So you make sure that they have shade and there's lots you can do to protect the local habitats in your area. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, mm -hmm. Then you can sort of step it up to the next level where we actually do collaborative programs. And it could be with the department. It could be uh, a fisheries notions. I mean, it could be with the province and that. And then they tend to get a little bit bigger. But it's all about habitat conservation, restoration, protection of water, uh, particularly under the new Water Sustainability Act in the province. <clears throat> now, a lot of people are frustrated that's not fully implemented, but it mm -hmm. does have the critical protection that we need, and that's called the minimum ecological flows that are written into that act. And under climate change, maintaining critical flows is going to be the secret to protecting salmon is juveniles. Yeah, excellent. Now, you know, we... I think I think one of the things that we all struggle with is is some of the uh, the media sources that are out there, and you know we got a, some local newspapers that really only print the doom and gloom stuff. When when one when one fishery is having to be closed down due to uh, misappropriated numbers or whatever it is, um, they they seem to really harken on let's let's build up this big massive doom and gloom story when really that's a small small part of, of our fishery here and it seems to be that um you know if an area is closed people outside of this province or even inside this province assume that the whole province is closed and, that, and that's not the case i know we're not going to get into specifics because we're still trying to uh go through that but i think that our responsibility is is media and of course with social media and facebook and all these different platforms that are out there and all these false uh, these false things it it does it does weigh heavy on anglers and also to people that are wanted to take part in this fishery whether or not they're open or closed and and, and that's something that, that we probably need to do a better job of, of getting positive messages out and and from what we've talked about a little bit here already there are some positive things coming down the pipe right well there, uh, yeah and as we said uh, the management in recent years although the production has been poor <clears throat> we have in in many cases met our spawning escapements and if we haven't, we've ensured that the majority of the run gets put back onto the spawning grounds. But what you're talking about really is a huge challenge. Um, yeah, for sure. If you don't have the balance, then clearly uh, people get a misinterpretation of what the situation is really like. And just getting accurate reporting of numbers and trends like that is, is something that I notice all the time. Uh, and it's very difficult to do this. And we really do need some way that we can communicate using probably social media more that we can get the sort of the facts out there if you want. <clears throat> it is far more balanced and more positive than much of the media does uh, portray. And it is unfortunate because the yes, people are concerned when the story is poor, but it does tend to get overstated at times. And, and then it, it builds cons increased concern without real justification yeah hey Brian you gotta we're gonna take a quick break for our sponsors to uh, help pay some bills here 
Are you okay to hang on the line here for yep, a few more minutes? Yep, no problem. Okay, awesome. All right, thanks. This segment of the BC Outdoors podcast with Mike Mitchell is proudly brought to you by your Toyota BC dealers. All right, we're uh, back after a quick break there. Brian, welcome back to the show again. Uh, you know, we were just talking a little bit off off air again here on some things. Let's 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 skip back a little bit more. And I asked this question, and I don't think I got uh, I didn't I didn't get into it more. And I'm going to give you a full platform here to do some great promotion for the Pacific Salmon Foundation. But I've been involved in a few of the uh, fundraising dinners too, and lots and lots of fun, right? But there's other ways uh, for people to get involved, and there are lots of lots of opportunities for people to get involved, right? Well, I mean, the big thing for involvement, of course, is that if you want to really contribute to uh, restoring production, that you couldn't, do- you can donate to the Pacific Salmon Foundation for a tax-generated uh, receipt for you, and that, um, and we do a, a big year-end push that we run between November and December, and it's been very gratifying recently. So we are seeing returns now, or maybe getting to one hundred eighty, two hundred thousand dollars coming in at year-end. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing that I love about the Pacific Salmon Foundation is that we have the recreational stamp that might comes in. That's the, the $6 if you want to retain a salmon. Yes. And we negotiated in 2013 that all that money comes back to BC now. So the other aspect of PSS is we have access to the endowment. The endowment is able to offset some of our direct costs. So in terms of donations to PSF, if you do it through one of the community dinners or you do it as a year-end donation or anything else, we are generating like 90 to 92 cents of every dollar goes back out to community activities to restore salmon production and habitat. Yeah. So I don't think there's many groups that can sort of get that sort of no. turnaround and get that money back out to communities at that no, level. And I do, I do remember when that announcement was made. It, was, it is quite exciting when you can get that, that, those funds back back to the base and, and back to the roots of where it should be. So um, again, so people, if you, if you want to get involved, you know, make a donation, attend some of the different dinners. And there's lots of din- dinner events that are in the, in, uh, in your area. So uh, yeah, we do eight, eight of, of them, them around the, around the province. And we have two galas really. We have a growing one in Victoria and that's been very gratifying to see that grow. And we have our big one in Vancouver every year, which, now is uh, sold out every year and it's about 700 people so it, it's a wonderful event it, our staff do it up really nice and people have a great time and then we um the other thing too is and so ryan what's the pacific sound foundation website if people want to look around and get involved there it's just www.psf.ca perfect easy lots easy to remember easy easy yep. um you know, we're, again, we're, we'll go back here a little bit too. We, we did talk a little bit about some of the partnerships that have been involved with the Pacific Sound Foundation, but one of the things that you and I talked about, again, off air here a little bit, is um, the First Nations partnerships and their role going forward. And I think that it's a real big uh, advantage to have an have a ongoing good relationship with every group, let alone just uh, just one group. But I think that that's going to be a key a key going forward, don't you? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, we work with everybody. I'm going to make that very clear. Uh, we do have a specific objective in the foundation to try and improve our interaction with First Nations because historically it's not been that great, I would I would admit quite openly. So we need to do a better job ourselves. But I love the opportunity. I mean, many First Nations will talk that, you know, their people are about their place, their homeland. 
Well, there's no better way to understand local salmon populations than to talk to the people that have lived there for, you know, 100 generations. Or That's so. right. Yeah. So absolutely, I, I think the opportunity to work more with First Nations is going to be critical in the future. We've actually even recommended to government that we develop what we're calling a salmon network. And the network would be working with all our community groups, plus any First Nation that wants to engage. And our objective is to give very cost-effective and very high-quality stock assessment information annually. So we really can follow the trends in Pacific salmon by area and species. And we can track their habitats. Mm -hmm. And when we need something done, like the fires last year, yeah. you know, you didn't really hear anything about salmon because, of course, it was in the summer and there's some fish in the river. But that's a huge risk to salmon because of all the forest burnout. That's right. You can get you get the heating and you also get a lot of runoff. Yeah. Right. So even fires are, are a threat to Pacific salmon. And that was a huge area. So how do we go about restoring all that? No, exactly. Uh, you need to get lots of people engaged to save salmon in those areas. Yeah. No, no kidding. Hey, so Brian, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna pay these last set of bills and we'll come back on the other end. You got another two minutes and then we're uh, on the back end here. Yep, no problem. This segment of the BC Outdoors podcast with Mike Mitchell is proudly brought to you by Yamaha. Are you ready to get out and conquer the water? Let Yamaha rev your heart. All right, folks, back after the quick break. Uh, again, we got Brian Riddell, the CEO of the Pacific Salmon Foundation there. Brian, we're covering lots of hot and heavy things here today. Um, I do got to ask you on the side, what is the best fishing trip you have ever been on? And a hint, the only right answer is the one with me. Well, absolutely. I'm not sure which one I picked. Though. That's right. We, you know, I have told so many people stories about Millbank, yeah. and uh, we had a struggle for three days yeah. just making the That's show. That's right. Yeah, and and then we hit those coho and on, on a slack. Top. Oh yeah, it was ridiculous. Never had fishing like that in my life. Anyway. No, no, it was crazy. And we've, I think, what if we we've done three or four different uh, different yeah. shows yeah. now too, and and. Uh, yeah, we, the Shearwater has been a kind of a special area that uh, that resort and, and that area. And you're right; it, it's been a funny thing up there at times. I had it a couple of years ago where it was just scraping the barrel to get even a coho, and then you come back two weeks later, and it's like you can't keep them off. And it just timing-wise changes and fluctuations and and that too. But uh, yeah, we've had some great shows. And you know, I got to say, one of my favorite shows we did is when we did the um, the Chinook fishery. Uh, out of Vancouver and the island here, we we're doing that micro Chinook fishery and the testing and the sampling and stuff. Right, that was right. fantastic. That that to me part of our oh, sailor sea program. Yeah, that to me that to me was one of the best shows that that I think that I've been involved in, just because it was um, something totally different and it was almost the purpose for doing the show rather than just showing off how we can catch fish. This was. This was it was kind of neat, right? So, um, again, those those have been some great. I got to tell your listeners though that we're we were fishing for fifty to twenty centimeter. <laughs> That's seven. right. On and and we were using <laughs> uh, mooching gear, mooching rods and reels. Yeah. And uh, it was quite quite funny to watch and just having to watch that tiny little tip bop, and you're like, okay, I think there's one on there, and and it's not like a normal salmon bite when the rod buckles over. This thing was just a twitch, and having to reel them in. But anyway, that was a great episode. So, um, lots of fun. So. Let's get into um, into another part here that you know, some of the, the the different closures that have happened recently, and we're, what some of the things we're protecting. One of the things on on a hot topic too is orcas, right? And I'm going to let you yeah. talk because I, I fully don't understand the whole process. I understand that 
that we're trying to protect um, the orcas here. But you can you can you know more about this. So I'm going to let you talk about this. Well, I mean, and the big issue for us, of course, is the relationship between the orcas, and it's both the southern southern resident orcas and the northern resident orcas. Um, they both are specialists in their diet of feeding on Chinook salmon. Now, I'm, I've told many people, I think it's one of the most interesting ecological relationships in the world and that, but why would the top marine predator, the, the killer whale, focus on one of the least abundant species, which is the Chinook salmon? And of course, the answer comes to how orca whales feed, and they feed with echolocation. Mm-hmm. And Chinook give them a large target. Big targets are uh, typically they're going to be more females than males, so they're energy rich. And this seems to have developed over many generations uh, that you get this very, uh, very precise specialization. So it's over 90% of their diet in the summer are Chinook salmon. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. But of course, that leads us into the issues that we're trying to deal with right now. That. Uh, many people think the orcas are suffering from the lack of food or the uh, inability to access food in some areas because of noise or disturbance and that. And so the department has had to really address this because we are down to, it seems now, only 75 of the southern resident killer whales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've seen them take actions where we have uh, total fin fish closures in limited areas. And in other areas, we've cut back on our uh, harvest from two to four to one to one and two mm-hmm. and that, but we still have access to go fishing. Yeah. So on one hand, I'm sure lots of people criticize that this is not all you have to do. And I don't think that is the department's intention. I think they are doing more mm-hmm. than that, but right now we're coming to grips with that. We're going to have to take less Chinook and we're going to have to start now looking at a direct, almost allocation to orca killer whales. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with that is they're not the only marine mammal out there feeding on uh, juvenile Chinook and coal. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say juvenile. I mean, the orcas are dealing with the adults. Yeah. But seals and sea lions, we have learned, are very, very successful predators on juvenile Chinook and coal. Mm-hmm. And so there is going to be this unfortunate discussion about whether there's need to reduce the number of seals and sea lions that are feeding because uh, they have to, the Chinook obviously have to grow, but you're feeding on the same age class, right? Yeah. So you, you can't have it being burnt at both ends and have enough when it comes down to sharing. So we're going to have to reduce the pressures there somehow, and we're going to have to work out how that's done. If we don't, then we have to take more and more fish out of the allowable harvest for uh, recreational commercial First Nations. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just it just seems to be so much, <laughs> so much more. Now, now have there been studies done, Brian, and you may not know this, but are there more uh, sea lions and seals now than there were, say, 10, 15 years ago or even five years ago? Oh, yeah. There are. Well, if you only use a shorter time period, like 10 or 15, mm-hmm. then I think the sea lion answer would be yes, there are more now because it's you are seeing a shift in some of their distribution. Mm-hmm. Harbor seals were at their low point in uh, the very early 70s. Mm-hmm. And I think the census then was around six or 7,000 animals in the Strait of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Right. But now when you do the census, it's up around between 40 and 45,000. But it's been that for probably 10 or 15 years. 
So the population is not continuing to expand. It has sort of stabilized around that point. But you can see that that's, you know, six times larger than when the, the uh, seals were actually harvested or, or at least they were controlled yeah. back in the very early 70s. Yeah. But they've been protected since I think it was 72. And so since that time, they have really expanded. Yeah. Yeah, we've had it a few times on our show where we've lost a few fish to seals and I get it. I understand the whole uh, the whole process between it, but it sure can be devastating uh, feeling when when you lose a fish to a seal or or that. But again, that's all part of it. But I think the bigger problem is is that the if they're if they're feeding on the juveniles, then we're we're in for another struggle, right? It's just one more thing that 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 we're going to have to deal with, and the Chinook have to deal with, really, right? Yeah, and it's not insignificant. Um... Our estimate from the Sea Sea Research Program is that for juvenile uh, Chinook and coho salmon in the Strait of Georgia, we think harbor seals will account for about a third of the mortality on those fish. So 33 percent is a lot of juveniles to lose. They can't grow to be adults if they're in the tummies of those seals. All right, Brian, well, that has been <laughs> it's been an educational uh, 25 minutes of talking here and I can't thank you enough for taking time. I know how busy you are and I know you're also getting ready for retirement too, aren't you? That's heading this way next March. <laughs> I think we've been talking about that for a couple of years and that's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be great for you, but I don't think it's going to be great for us as, uh, anglers and, and everything too. And I, you know, I've gotten to know you over the past few years from being on the show and stuff. And I realize how important, uh, the work you do and, and the messaging you get out and stuff like that. And, and you know, well, that goes with the Pacific Sound Foundation too. And, you know, I'll, I'll speak on other anglers right now, but I can't thank you enough for all your, all your time and effort you've put in uh, over the years. And we're going to, we're going to sure miss you. So I hope we get to see you around a little bit at some of the, maybe the functions and dinners or, or are you just riding off in the sunset no, no, and no, you're no. going to go? Actually, I've actually already decided that I'll spend uh, half time for a couple of years to help with the, some okay. of the programs. So I'm certainly not disappearing. And that can't get rid of me that quick. No, I don't think we want to. No, that's that's excellent. That's excellent. But um, thanks for thank you for being on the show, Brian. Um, it's been awesome here. So let's just go quickly and talk about again uh, the website. People want to get involved and have a look. It's uh, www.psf.ca yep. for the Pacific Salmon Foundation. You can find dinner locations there, ways to donate, and ways to get involved. Um, and again. Uh, super important people get out there get involved and, and again thank you Brian for being on the show sure, it's my pleasure thanks very much thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more BC Outdoors podcasts please follow us on Facebook and Instagram for upcoming television and podcast schedules this podcast produced and engineered by Kirk Gilchrist